come to your seats. I know I am not Stephen, um, <laughs> but I'm going to do some announcements this morning, so I'm sorry you'll have to miss the bright orange beard. Um, so um, for September 25th, uh, we are having Vacation Bible School for half a day. It'll be from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., and it is the Romans Road theme. And so if you would like to help out with that, if you have a heart for kids, um, helping out with crafts, games, anything, um, there is a sign-up sheet at the back at the Connect table, so you all feel free to place your name on there or get with Miss Rhonda back there. She is kind of helps coordinating it, so if you all have any questions or would like to help out with that, definitely reach out um, or place your name back there. Um, the care closet, so we have our announcement board there in the kind of before you're there as you walk in and um, each, we kind of did a donation a couple weeks ago, but if anybody has just continuing donations as far as any clothes or anything you'd like to give, um, if you'd like to see Paula or Stephen for that, because um, we can still be giving those donations as you all um, would like. We also have Risen Life Fellowship um, t-shirts, sweatshirts online. Um, it's at bonfire.com, so if you all have any trouble as far as um, finding the website. It's on that announcement board as far as the website, but if you all have any questions or have any trouble with that, see Paula. Um, it's getting colder here soon, so if you want to get some sweatshirts and t-shirts, they're very comfy, So, but she did a great job with that. Um, and then the last thing is um, right in front of you, if you all are new, if anyone's new this morning um, or first time, or maybe this has been a few times and you may want to get connected, there is connect cards right there in front of you. Um, if you all don't care to fill that out and then stick it in the offering box um, at the basket at the very um, kind of top there at the, uh, the connect table, um, we would love to get to know you, reach out, and just kind of just say thank you for joining us and get you plugged in. Um, so, And just letting us know how we can be praying for you as well. But um, let's go ahead and stand up. Oh, yes. Okay. So meal on the 26th on that Sunday. Bring a empty belly. <laughs> all right, so if you all don't care to stand up um, and just greet someone this morning that maybe you don't know um, or just say hello to everyone, then we'll get started in just a moment.
in Second Corinthians, um, Paul makes this statement that is really easy for us to forget. Um, we were praying for Afghanistan this week, and one of the prayer requests that was asked that when we help people, um, when we either help support Afghanistan or when we're praying for them, that we don't see ourselves as God. I think that's very easy to do, that when we, um, it's very easy to become pious. Well, I'll help this person out because they're struggling, and then now you feel good, and now you feel like you can have the glory that really should be given to God. Um, and that's very easy to fall into with our pride. Um, but really, our efforts, you know, I think working at a hospital, I see so many people who are physically disabled, mentally disabled. So really, at the core, everything that we have, everything that we are able to accomplish, that comes from Christ and not from us. We are not God. God is, and he should get all the glory in our hearts, in our prayers, in our actions, and even in our attributes. When, we, when people compliment us, to really point everything back to the Lord because everything, even every breath that we have, comes from him. And in Second Corinthians, Paul describes that. He says, God said unto me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am, for when I am weak, then I am strong.
Father, God, we just come before you. Um, God, we thank you for the opportunity and ability to um, come and, and worship and fellowship and be fed by you this morning. Um, God, there are places in the world where right now that is um, a death penalty. Um, to gather like this this morning, um, we would be walking to into a grave um, in other countries. So God, I just praise you for the freedom that we still have um, and pray for those who do not have it. Um, God, we just uh, lift up this service to you. We ask that it is um, a pleasing aroma in your in your sight and just ask that you are with Zach this morning as he brings a message, um, knowing that it is not him, but you and him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was wonderful, wasn't it? Our all-lady uh, band was, that was great worship, girls. Thank you all. It was so great. Um, well, good morning. How, how's everyone doing? Good, good, good. I'm doing well. Um, well, before we get started... Uh, Megan kind of alluded to it there, but I, I just want to take a few moments to to pray together as a congregation uh, about the situation going on right now in Afghanistan. I'm sure uh, most of you guys know if you've been keeping up with the news, uh, or we've update, we've uh, posted a, a few updates in, in band and on social media this week. Um, but you you probably know that that Afghanistan has kind of uh, been taken over by the Taliban, which is evil terrorist uh, organization um, and they're now controlling the country and so many many uh, Christians and others who have any kind of western influence uh, their lives are are at stake even even this this very moment uh, their lives are, are at stake um, and they're in danger of losing their lives and, and so you know I think it's a, a, a really sobering reminder of of how blessed we are to live in, in a country where we can openly worship Christ and we can spread the gospel. You, you know, you can pretty much spread the gospel with no repercussions. You realize that, right? Like You can pretty much spread the gospel with little to no persecution in this country, in this city, right here where you are, right there on your street. You can do that. We can do that. We have the freedom... To do that, and so it, I think it's a, a sobering reminder of how we take that for granted so much, how we take the gospel for granted and our ability to, to spread it freely. Uh, but I think it's also a time where the church worldwide and hopefully many churches throughout the, the country and the world are, are doing this this morning, but a time when the church worldwide really needs to be praying for what's going on over there, praying for our brothers and sisters. In Afghanistan, um, as far as I've read, and I don't know for sure that this is true, but, but what I've read is that the fastest growing church in the world is Iran, 
And the second fastest is Afghanistan. Um, two countries where following Christ may cost you your life. Um, and so you know, our hearts should just be broken over what's going on with our brothers and sisters across the world. But, you know, it also goes to show, I think, that the words of Jesus still ring true. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen? The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Where, see, where persecution rises, the true church, it's just strengthened. That's all it is. It's just strengthened and refined. And, and I believe God's going to continue to grow His church in Afghanistan and, and anywhere where persecution is, is rising uh, but, but this morning, uh, you know, before we get into John 12, I want to take a moment and, and just bow our heads. And um, as you do that, I, I want to I read a post from our social media uh, a, a couple days ago that, that Paul had posted um, that kind of gives us some direction in our prayers. And uh, also, I think, Megan, did you want to share a little bit about the, the Nazarene fund quickly? And um, yeah, do you want to get on the mic? You want to do that? I don't know if it's on or not.
Yeah, if, if you want to be involved in that, thank you for sharing that, Megan. Um, then please do. Um, so I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads. Um, and I'm just going to kind of, like I said, read this, this post that, that Paula had posted to help guide our prayer time this morning. Uh, if you just want to pray silently, and then at the end I will uh, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump into John here. But let's bow our heads together. So first of all, pray for believers who are being hunted, like Megan just talked about. Pray that they would be bold and courageous. Let's pray for women and young girls who are in danger of abuse and rape, that they would have refuge and and safety. Pray for those who are trying to flee that they would be hidden from the Taliban. Let's also pray for the Taliban. Um, you know, there sometimes there's a time when, when war can become necessary. But wouldn't it be great if God just saved them all? It says that they would be blinded as Paul on the road to Damascus by the glory of God shining so brightly in the faith of the believers they persecute that they would repent and be saved. Let's pray also for revival in the hearts of people across the world for the lost to be saved and and for the church to wake up to what truly matters. And then lastly, let's pray that the Lord's will would be done, that he would use this evil for for great good, for the building of his kingdom. And Father, we just lift up our our brothers and sisters. We lift up those who are being hunted right now, even as we speak, Father, in this comfortable air-conditioned church where we have freedom. I have freedom to openly speak your words this morning from the Bible. And God, we pray for those who don't have that freedom this morning, who are literally being hunted for trying to do the same. We ask for their protection, Lord. God, we ask for their endurance. Father, help them to persevere even through this persecution. God, I pray that you would only strengthen your church through this. Pray that, that Satan and his armies would have nothing to say, Lord, nothing they can do to stop the, the growth of ch- the church in Afghanistan and r- across the world. Pray that you would do the things that only you can do this morning. You would work sur- supernaturally. Father, we, we pray for these, these, these young women who, 
who are some of who are being sold or taken or uh, whatever's going on there, Lord. There's all kinds of uh, ungodly things going on to to our women in this world. Father, we lift them up. God, protect. God, supernaturally protect. Don't let this happen, Father. God, I pray for the Taliban. I pray that they would be saved, Lord. That you wouldn't let their evil works prosper, but that instead you would supernaturally change them and save them, Lord. Give them a heart that beats only for Jesus. God, we just really need you to do only the things that only you can do this morning. We lift up our brothers and sisters. I, I, I pray that in, even in this moment, they would, they would feel the prayers from, from across the world towards them. And that it would give them comfort and great hope and great endurance, great perseverance. Lord, that their faith would only be strengthened in the risen one who was dead and who has come back to life, Lord. God, you just do the things that only you can do. Lord, we ask that as we continue in this service, that you would be glorified, that you would move me out of the way, that you would speak through me, God, this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I ask you to continue to, to be praying throughout this week you know, for what's going on across the world. Um, and also, let's, let's, let this, let's use this as an opportunity to say, you know, we're not going to take for granted our freedoms anymore to go, to go proclaim the gospel to those around us. If you will, turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we'll get started with Bible study. We may go a tad late this morning, so I apologize. <clears throat> but this marks the fifth week, I believe, that we've been studying through this wonderful chapter. Um, you know, every chapter of John is just so full of eye-opening, incredible truths for us. I, I just love the book of John so much. If, if you are actively engaged in studying the Word personally, in your personal time away from here, first of all, why not? Why not? I, I want you to know that most of your Christian growth will not come right here on Sunday mornings. Hopefully some of it will, right, if we're doing our job. But most of it will not. Most of your personal growth will come in your personal time in the Word of God. So please don't neglect this time if you're doing that. If you're doing that this morning, then uh, let today be the day that we wake up and we start reading the Word of God for ourselves, studying the Word of God for ourselves. Where else are we going to go to find the words of life, right? This is, is the only place. It's the only place where we can go is the Word of God. And secondly, that was firstly, secondly, uh, John's a really good place to start. So if, you, if you're not doing that, John's a really good place to start. Um, of course, we have all of our sermons online and podcasts, if, if, you, if that would be of, of some assistance to you, but um, today is the day to start studying the Word for yourself. Um, 
But today we're going to finish up John chapter 12. And for the past two sermons, we've had our title as the hour has come. The hour has come. And so we're going to continue that once again today uh, as we finish up the chapter. Remember that Jesus in uh, verse 12, he begins uh, with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Right, we, we studied that a few weeks ago, and everyone in Jerusalem is worshiping Him, and they're hailing Him as, as their Messiah. This is the moment that all the Jews have been waiting for, for centuries, literally centuries waiting for this moment. This is the moment when, in their minds, in their minds, the Messiah is going to come, and He's going to kick the Romans out of power, and He's going to usher in this eternal kingdom uh, this eternal reign of, of the nation of Israel. That's what they're hoping for, right? But as he begins to speak, it becomes very evident that this is not what Jesus has come to do. As he speaks, um, he speaks of this hour, he says, uh, this hour that has now come. It's an hour that John has been anticipating all through his gospel. And Jesus says in verse 23 that the hour is now here. Verse 23 says that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And so our focus over the past couple of sessions has been on what exactly Jesus meant when He spoke of this hour that has arrived. And, and, and we will um, very quickly review those points uh, before we move. I promise very quickly we'll review these, these six points that we've talked about the last uh, couple of weeks and then we'll move on. But uh, verses 17 through 23, we see that the hour has come for full inclusion of the Gentiles, full inclusion of the Gentiles because of what's about to take place, the cross that is uh, both Jew and Gentile would have equal opportunity to salvation through Jesus. Right. In verse 23, 24, excuse me, we see that it's also the hour for the fruitful sacrifice of the son. Uh, this speaks of his atoning death for sin which would be a reality by the end of this week. This was Jesus' primary purpose, and the primary purpose of this hour that he's talking about. It's his death, his atoning death on the cross. Verses 25 and 26 show us that the hour is also here for his faithful followers to imitate their Savior. And so it's time now for the church to represent Christ. When Jesus dies and he raises from the dead and he ascends back into heaven, it's time for the church to step in to represent Christ's love and sacrifice. And then in verses 27 through 28, we, we see the focused determination of the Son. As He approaches the cross to make sacrifice for us, we can see how determined Jesus is that He would make that sacrifice. 28 through 30, we see the hours come for the Father's affirmation of the plan. Jesus and His Father are in perfect unity with this plan of salvation. And then in, in, in verses 31 through 33, we see that the hour has come for the fateful defeat of, of darkness. Because of what's about to happen here, Satan and death and sin and darkness would be defeated on the cross. Amen? That, that deserves an amen. Right? Yeah. He, he, Satan and death and darkness and sin will be defeated on the cross. Never to have power over the believer again. And we talked about that a lot last week. Now this morning, let's finish up the chapter. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to read, read the rest of the chapter first. And we're going to start in verse 32 and read through 50. 
So Jesus is talking here. He says, And I, if I am lifted up from, from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say, The Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in that last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and, and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, what, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Amen. You guys can have a seat. All right. Well, this passage is really one of the most bittersweet passages in Scripture, um, I believe. Uh, we see in this passage the lights finally go out on the nation of Israel as Jesus' public ministry it comes to an end here. Um, we'll see, uh, after this point, we'll see only private teachings of Jesus. A lot of it will focus on His disciples starting in, verse, in chapter 13. Um, but, but we're only going to see private teachings of Jesus from here on out. Um, but we see John describe here the moment when Israel abruptly changed from worshiping Jesus, hailing Him as King, to rejecting Jesus. All on the same day here, it seems. And we see Jesus turn Israel over to their unbelief. This is bitter for what it means for Israel, right? It's, it's bitter because of what it, what it means and what it means happened in 70 A.D., which we've talked a lot about, which the, the temple would be destroyed, Jerusalem would be absolutely destroyed. It would be an end to Judaism as, as they knew it. Judaism would totally change fundamentally after that. But it was sweet for the good that God brings the whole world from this moment. And so let, let's look a little bit more deeply 
as, as we consider our next point, on top of all the other implications of, of what this hour means that Jesus refers to, the hour has also come for the foretold unbelief of Israel. The foretold unbelief of Israel. John, from the opening chapter of this gospel, in John 1.11, he tells us that Jesus came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. And we've seen those words ring true throughout the book to, to this point. Jesus, who, who's a Jewish man, he was rejected by his own brothers, remember. He was rejected by his own town. He was rejected ultimately by his own country, the whole country, the whole nation of Israel as a whole before he went to the cross. Although there was a, a remnant of, of, of those Jewish people who believed in Jesus, and there were some who believed after his death, right, including his brothers. But for the most part, the Jewish nation did not ultimately embrace Jesus as their Messiah. And in this section of John, verses 34 through 43, we see this unbelief kind of explained for us. Uh, you know, many today would, would say, well, if Jesus was really the Messiah, if He was really the Messiah, why would the Jews reject Him? Right? If Jesus was really the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, then why did the Jews not embrace Him as their Messiah? And so many would say that today, and they would use this excuse for why they also do not want to believe in Christ. Or they also refuse to come to Jesus for salvation. But here we see a summary of how it was that Israel did miss their Messiah. And we see that it was predicted close to 800 years in advance. Israel's unbelief was predicted by the prophet Isaiah. We're going to see that here. Israel's unbelief was not a failure on God's part. It was not a, a failure of God's gospel. And it most certainly did not catch God by surprise. It, was, it wasn't like God sent Jesus and He was just hoping that His nation of Israel would, would, would embrace Jesus. No, no, Jesus, God knew that the nation would reject Jesus. And in fact, He used their rejection to accomplish His most amazing work in history. Remember when we talked about Jesus riding into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry a few weeks ago. We looked back in Luke chapter 19, which is a parallel passage to this. And Jesus is looking over the city and He's weeping, right? And He says, if Israel had only known this day, and if they had known the things that make for their peace, their peace with God, which he's referring to his death here. If they had only known and expected this day, he would have saved them. But he says that since they missed it, these things are now hidden from their eyes. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19. God's patience at this point had run out on Israel. And this is the hour when he, he let them go into judgment. And so let's look at this progression in, in these verses Regarding their unbelief. First of all, Israel's reject, rejection was because they were ignorant of, of Old Testament truth. They were ignorant of Old Testament truth. Verses 32 and 33 where we started. Jesus explains that he's about to be lifted up. And then John explains that he, he said this to explain what type of death he was about to have. Which was the cross. Now Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted 
up. He's talking about being lifted up on a cross to die. And in verse 34, we see that the people know exactly what he's talking about. They're not confused about this point. They understand he's talking about his death on the cross, but they don't accept it. They explain, in fact, that that according to the Old Testament, they say, the Son of Man remains forever. That's what they say to Jesus in verse 34. They say, so how then, Jesus, can you say that you're going to be lifted up in death? We know in the Old Testament the Son of Man remains forever, so how can you say you're going to be lifted up in death? What kind of Son of Man are you exactly? That's their question to, to him. And to that, we have to say, uh, they were partially correct about that. They weren't wrong. They knew their Old Testament, sort of. The Old Testament does say that the Son of Man would reign forever. That's what gives us great hope, in fact. We think of passages like Daniel chapter 7, which we've talked about a lot, where he's given an everlasting kingdom. We think about Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, where it says that there would be no end to his government and peace. And we could go through passage after passage after passage that talks about the Messiah's forever reign, his eternal reign. There are many, and that's definitely worth studying. We don't have time to, to go through any more passages this morning on that. But, you know, equally worth studying and equally there. And this is the part that the Israelites were ignorant of. Equally present are the passages that that speak of the Messiah's suffering in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says the Messiah would be cut off. Referring to his death. Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm 22, we see lots of detail. We've talked about both of those passages at length. Uh, But lots of detail given in advance of the suffering of the coming Messiah. Again, that's just a small sample of the many places in the Old Testament where the Messiah's suffering is prophesied. And so the Old Testament paints this picture of a Messiah who would reign forever, yes, but also a Messiah who would be killed and cut off from His people. But the people of Israel were so hungry for the former. Or they, were, they were so hungry for this Messiah who would reign forever on earth as Israel's king. That's what they wanted. Man, they were hungry for it. It's, it's hard to even explain how hungry they were for this. They were ready for this eternal reign. And they were so ready that they totally missed, they totally overlooked the terrible suffering of the Messiah that was also predicted. And because they overlooked it, They ultimately are the ones that caused it. They caused the suffering of Jesus. They wanted God and His Messiah, but they wanted Him on their own agenda. They wanted Him for their own plans. They wanted Him the way that they wanted Him. They wanted only the Messiah who would bring them pleasure and power and riches and glory. It's not that the full story wasn't there in the Old Testament. It was very clearly there, in fact. But it's that they chose to be ignorant of the whole truth. Put another way, they wanted God 
for his gifts. And they were not interested in having God for who God really is. They didn't want God for God. And before, before we say, oh, that's so terrible, and point the finger at them, well, let's do a little reflection of our own. How many times do we willfully become ignorant of the Bible's truths that challenge our own thoughts and that we don't necessarily agree with? Right? How many times do we become willfully ignorant of the truths that hurt and that we don't want to hear? You know, we love to hear talk about heaven, sure. We love to talk about grace. Do we love to talk about judgment? Do we love to talk about the sin issues that God is calling out in us? That we just want to overlook? Do we love to talk about that? Or are we willfully ignorant sometimes of those things? Oh, you know, it must mean something else. Right? It pro- that, yeah, no, what, what's happening here is if you go back and you look at the first, and you, and you go back and you, you, you see these things, then you'll understand that, no, it, it actually means something totally different. It can't mean that I'm responsible for my sin. It can't mean that God wants me to clean up this area. That's not what it means. Surely not. I'm fine. You ever find yourself doing that? Maybe not that dramatically. But have you ever found yourself doing that, if you're honest, this morning? I just, eh, I like this part of Scripture, but this part, well, it probably has another interpretation. How often do we go to Scripture for what God can do in our lives? And God can do a great work in your life, okay? But how often we go to Scripture simply for that? What can God do for me? How can He fix my problems? Rather than going to God simply to know more about God. Do you ever open the Scriptures just saying, Lord, I don't have a problem that I'm wanting you to speak into. Right now, I mean, I don't ignore that. I just want to know you, Lord. I just want to know who you are a little bit more today. And so I'm going to open your word. Not because I think I'm going to get something out of it. How many people's Bible reading plans dies about January 6th because they're not getting something out of it? Because the passage is not directly speaking into my problem. I would encourage us as believers to go to the Word just for the Word. Go to God for God. Study God just to learn more about God. We so many times approach God and His Word selfishly. Just as the Israelites did. And then when, when, when it's not meeting our felt needs. We kind of we take a break, right? We, we kind of fall off a little bit. I haven't been in the Word in, in a while. But yeah, I love Jesus. It's been a while though, you know. I, I, yeah, it's, it's just. It's hard. It's so hard to read the Word, you know. It just doesn't speak to me. Well, I would argue that the reason you have such a hard time reading the Word is that you're going to the Word for what the Word can do for you. 
rather than knowing this God who gave his life for you. Knowing him a little bit deeper. You know that the Bible says that as we seek first the kingdom of who? God. All of these things shall be added unto us. You know, your problems have a way of solving themselves when you're not looking all the time for the solution. And instead you're just saying, God, I want to worship you. You know what, the, uh, things are kind of falling apart, but I just want to, let me just worship you right now. Let me just go to the Word and, and learn something in, in Zechariah about you. Let me, just give me a, another glimpse, Lord, of who you are. And as we seek that, and we begin to obey what we're reading, boy, the problem, you guys, you're never going to be problem free, Okay. But boy, the problems kind of become a little bit more light. You know, I, I think some of the believers in Afghanistan would testify to that right now. Some of them are facing death right now, and they're facing it with boldness. And they're facing it with confidence. And they're saying, well, these, these light and momentary afflictions, they are nothing to be compared to what I'm about to see. They are nothing to be compared with this God that I serve. And yes, I may be tortured for what I believe, but I'm going to meet this amazing God. We could learn a thing or two from the persecuted church. Let's not become ignorant of the truth that we don't think applies to us. We have a tendency in America to be selfish about everything. Let, let it not be with the word. It's not about you. It's not about me. This is so that we can know more of this God that we serve. And more about his kingdom. And as we do that. He promises everything else will fall into place. He promises. Is he, is he a lying God? No. Everything else will fall into place. Don't you worry about that. Next, Israel's unbelief ignored repeated revelation and evidence. And we might actually go really late today. So I apologize. Jesus is giving... Um, one last appeal in these final verses of chapter 12. And, and he repeats something he's repeated many times already. He says that, that he is the light and that they need to walk in the light. Because the light is about to be put out. That's essentially what he says here. The, the light is about to be killed. It's going to be gone. He's not going to be with them anymore. And he says if you will walk in the light, you if you will believe in him, you will become sons of light. But we find this again from, from the very first chapter of John. John 1, verse 4, it says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or, or did not overcome it. We see this idea repeated so much in, in John uh, especially through, through his I am statements. So Jesus' I am statements that we've, we've been through at, at length 
Uh, John 8, 8, 12, remember Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He repeats this idea in, in similar ways when he calls himself the bread of life. Right? He calls himself the, the source of, of living water. It would just spring out from the believer. He, he calls himself the door. He calls himself the good shepherd. All of these have this same idea that he is the only, only, only way to have true life and light in this world. He is the only way to not walk in darkness anymore. Apart from Christ, we are held captive to our sin. And we just continue to chase our desires. That's all we do. We just chase desire after desire after desire. And we find that as we continue to chase those desires, we don't become more fulfilled. We become more empty. It doesn't help. It doesn't help. We continue in emptiness But through Jesus, we have tremendous and sure hope of salvation. And our desire for chasing our own lusts, it's replaced by a desire to build His kingdom when we truly come to Him in faith and surrender and repentance. And we find that this new desire, in this new desire now, we find that fulfillment and that joy And that peace that we've always longed for. We can finally see. Amen. Hopefully you can see this morning. Through Jesus. And the more Jesus teaches himself as this one who is the light. The more Israel as a whole rejects what he's teaching. They reject his revelation. Even though, as verse 37 points out, he had done so many signs before them. Signs like making the blind see, right? Signs like healing leprosy. Signs like raising a man from the dead who had been in the grave for four days. And nobody denied any of the signs. You don't ever find Jesus in the New Testament being questioned about these signs. Actually, the Pharisees did try it once with the blind guy. And they were made to look like fools. You couldn't deny the signs. People today try to deny the signs. Well, the Pharisees sure didn't. And they were his worst enemies in the first century. But they could not deny what he was doing. He was literally raising people from the dead. And then he would bring this teaching that says, I'm the only way. There was so much evidence. And yet they continued to reject. That brings us to our next point, that their unbelief initiated in themselves. As we already saw, verse verse 37, although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And then verse 38 says that this fulfilled the words of Isaiah, who wrote what he wrote 800 years before, remember. And the quote here is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. It says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This prophecy did have some immediate fulfillment in the ministry of Isaiah himself. 
Because Isaiah was rejected by Israel. Um, the nation as a whole absolutely rejected Isaiah's message and ultimately killed him for it. But as we've already alluded to, Isaiah 53 is, is a messianic passage. Hardly anyone would dispute that. It's a, it is talking about the coming Messiah primarily. And it's talking about uh, this, this man who would be a man of sorrows, it says. It says he would be acquainted with grief. It says he was despised and he was considered smitten by God and afflicted. Go back and read this. Yet he was wounded for our transgressions, it says. It says that he was bruised for our iniquities. It says that the punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him. Isaiah could have never fulfilled that, right? It's obviously talking about this coming one. And it says, by his stripes we are healed. He would be this one who, who the Lord would lay upon the iniquity of us all. All of our sins would be laid on this one that was coming, that would be rejected. That passage goes on and it's abundantly clear that it's talking about the ministry of Jesus who would carry our sins yet be rejected by his own people. It, it's almost as if by quoting Isaiah 53 here, John is answering the crowd's question back in verse 34. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? It's almost like th this is the answer. How about you read Isaiah 53? That's how. It was predicted. It's very clear. It's all been there from the beginning. And John's point is that Israel hardened their own heart to the message of Jesus. They had chance after chance after chance. If you look at the book of John, the patience of Jesus is unbelievable. And they continued to reject. But see, God in His omniscience, He foreknew and He prophesied about this rejection. It wasn't that, that, that God sent Jesus and was shocked when they rejected. As I mentioned before, He knew all along that they would reject. He knew that they would reject. He knew that they would kill His Son. And yet, He still chose to send His Son. Now think about that for just a minute. Don't let that thought flee from you. And then let's make it very personal. He's known all along about you and your deal. He's known all along about your sin. Every single one of them. He knows the intimacies of your sin. You cannot hide anything from God. And yet He chose to send His Son to die for you. He chose to place that sin upon His Son and nail it to the cross. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a Savior we have. Amen? 
What a Savior we have. He's so loving and so patient and so graceful towards us. Yet there are limits to His patience. And we see that in this next point. Although Israel's unbelief initiated in themselves, it was their choice. It was eventually increased by God. In verse 39, we see John say, therefore. In other words, because they continually rejected Him willingly. Because they did that, it says, therefore, they could not believe. And he quotes Isaiah again, this time Isaiah chapter 6, again 800 years prior. There came a time uh, for Israel when God finally just gave them over to their unbelief. And at that point, they were, a, they were used to accomplish a greater purpose. And they had no ability to believe at that point. They had plenty of ability and they willfully rejected And then there came a day when they had no ability to believe in Christ. God closed the door. Boy, that's a scary thought, isn't it? That's a scary thought that God closed the door on their opportunity to believe. Again, this was also predicted 800 years in advance. Quoted in verse 40 here. Israel rejected and rejected and rejected until God finally said, okay, have it your way. And He turned the lights out. And back in verse 36, we see that Jesus was hidden from them after He spoke these things. I don't think that just means physically. He was hidden spiritually from them at this point. Now, were they born in a state of inability to believe in Jesus. An inability to accept the gospel that was presented to them. Were they born in that state? No, they were not. They had chance after chance. And they willfully rejected. Even after evidence, after evidence, after teaching, after teaching, after revelation, after revelation, after miracle, after miracle. They rejected Until finally God said, okay, and gave them over to their unbelief. It's not the only place we see this. We see this concept throughout the Bible, in fact. And the theological term for this is judicial hardening. Judicial hardening. We see it with Pharaoh in in Exodus. You know, the Bible says in Exodus ten times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. To the message that Moses was bringing. It says, it says ten times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then it also says ten times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then he used Pharaoh's unbelief to accomplish something greater. He used Pharaoh's unbelief to accomplish the Red Sea miracle. Right? He used his unbelief to accomplish Israel's escape Escape from, Israel, from Egypt. We see this also with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, we read 
page after page after page of God's patience towards Israel. They run from God constantly, and yet God continues to stretch out His hand to them, say, come on, come back home. Continually. Until finally there comes a point where He lets them go in their unbelief. He hardens them. And He allows them to be conquered by other nations. He uses them for different purposes. He uses their unbelief. But He hardens them in their unbelief. And we see this judicial hardening um, in other places throughout Scripture. But the principle is that God is patient. He's more patient than we can possibly imagine. He is patient with you this morning. He is long suffering with the sinner in his sin. But if we continue to ignore the evidence and we ignore the love and the grace of God, we continue to willfully disbelieve. There may come a point where he says, no more chances. And at that point, we, we no longer have the ability to believe. Again, no one is born this way. We all have the capacity to respond to the gospel when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. You have that capacity. That's why I'm always saying if the Lord is convicting you of sin, make sure you respond now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't wait until you go home. Because I don't know when, when will be your last chance. I don't know when either you will die or when Jesus will come back or when God may say no more. And then use your unbelief to accomplish some other purpose. See, with Israel, we, we see two great, amazing purposes that came from their unbelief and his hardening. One, the crucifixion was accomplished. Had Israel believed Jesus would have had to be cru crucified a different way, right? Or he wouldn't have been crucified. The crucifixion was accomplished through Israel's unbelief. How ironic that, that it was because of their unbelief and rejection that God would be able to accomplish the payment for sin through the crucifixion of Jesus and then guess what? After Jesus died and rose, He sent His Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. And it says at Pentecost, 3,000 Jews were saved. The Lord added to His church 3,000 that day. And then a few days later, guess what? He added 5,000 to the church. Can you believe that? 5,000 people in one day. 8,000 people were saved. I am sure that many who were hardened in unbelief and were in that crowd saying, crucify him. Surely, some of those same ones were saved after his resurrection. At Pentecost, or maybe a few days later, maybe later. See, even God's judicial hardening of Israel may not have been permanent, but it was used to accomplish the cross. In fact, we know it won't be permanent because Romans 11 describes how one day in the future Israel will come back and they will recognize their Messiah. It says all Israel will be saved. 
God's not done with Israel. But He did harden them for this time period. And in many ways, they're still hardened today and still blind to their Messiah. Oh yes, some come. People like Mike. Come still out of the nation of Israel and accept their Savior. Accept their Messiah. But for the most part, the Jews have not come. The second major purpose God accomplished through Israel's unbelief was the message of the gospel extending to the Gentiles and to the whole world. You see, Israel's rejection led to them greatly persecuting the early Christians. So much so that they drove them out of Jerusalem. They drove out the early Christians out of Jerusalem. And guess what the Christians did? Did they shut up? No, they did not. They went out of Jerusalem and they kept talking about Jesus and what He had accomplished on the cross. And so by their persecution, God accomplished just getting the gospel to the whole world. My goodness, God is great at bringing beauty from ashes. We keep saying this in John, we'll continue to say it. But man, our God is amazing at bringing something amazing after, uh, out of something absolutely tragic. The unbelief of Israel is tragic. And yet God brought His most amazing work of all time. The cross and the spread of the gospel. So that all may be saved. This God is uncomprehendable, isn't He? Let that sink into your personal situation. I'm asking you to think about your situation now. And the power of God. He has no limits. He has no limits. And He loves you this morning. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. Let's let that sink in. Now let it also sink in if you're the one who keeps rejecting and running from God. Well, the good news is that if you're actually concerned about that this morning, He hasn't hardened your heart to the point of unbelief, permanent unbelief at this point. If you're actually concerned about that this morning. But I would say again, come now. Today is the day of salvation. If the Lord is convicting your heart, then come Don't even listen to the rest of this sermon. It's not important. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and give your life to Christ. Come through repentance and trust in the Savior if that's you this morning. Ask Him to be Lord of your life, and He will. Because I don't know when your last chance might be. If your heart is softened to the gospel this morning, then come. There's a lot more that I wish we could say about this judicial hardening, but, but we'll just move on this morning. We don't have time. Um, but go back and look at the context of both Isaiah 53. Go back and read that this week. And Isaiah chapter 6. You'll see in Isaiah chapter 6, it's my favorite passage in the Bible. Isaiah sees God in all of His glory. He sees the throne of God. He sees God high and lifted up. He sees angels circling the throne of God, crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And here in John 
chapter 12, verse 41, John reveals that when Isaiah spoke these things in Isaiah 6, when he saw the throne of God, he was actually seeing the glory of Jesus. That's what he says in, in verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him who was to come. That was Jesus Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, really good verse to point out to our Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus isn't God. Jesus is absolutely God. Isaiah proves it here. One of many, many proofs in the Bible, of course. John and Isaiah certainly thought Jesus was God. There's no doubt about it. The last point about Israel's... uh, foretold unbelief is that it was illustrated by the leaders john says in verses 42 and 43 that that many even among the rulers believed in him but because of the pharisees they did not confess him because they, they they would have been put out of the synagogue and if they were put out of the synagogue we've talked about they were they're basically put out of jewish life you're scorned by everyone at that point and verse 43 is, is so tragic. It's, it says they, they believed in him, but, but they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So is this true belief? I don't think so. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, Verse 33, that if you do not confess him before men, he would not confess you before his father in heaven. And in Romans 10, 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And so I always challenge you, if you've given your life to Christ this morning, tell someone It's the greatest news of all time. So it should be a privilege and a joy to tell someone. But don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your Savior. True belief confesses the Lord Jesus Christ before men every time. These guys were so worried about the earthly and the temporary that they gave up God. And eternal life. And a tragic story. There is some bright news in all of this. We'll see later in the book of John. We'll see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were both Pharisees. And we will see them when Jesus dies. They do finally make their devotion for Christ public. They take his body and they prepare it for burial. But most of these men would die in their sins. Just as Jesus said in chapter 8 when he's talking to these religious leaders. They would die in their sins because they love the praise of men. More than the praise of God. Again, before we let ourselves get off the hook here. This isn't just about them. Um, You know, how many times, honestly, do we choose the praise of men over proclaiming about Christ and our generation. How many times did you do it this week? How many times have you done it this month? 
How many times have you chosen temporary comfort over eternal reward? Even as believers, we can do this, right? Even as believers, we, we do boldly claim Christ. But at times, if we're honest, we're, we're just loving the praise of men more than the praise of God. And we don't speak out at work. We don't speak out with our neighbors. We don't make it a point to go and proclaim Christ to this generation. And we just got to ask God to forgive us, right? Forgive us, Lord, when we do that. And embolden us, embolden us more to prioritize the praise of God more than the praise of men. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are blessed to live in a nation where we likely won't even be persecuted at all for sharing our faith. Not at this point, at least. That's one thing this Afghanistan situation has, has done in me. It, it, it's kind of create a fire that says, I'm done taking all of my resources and all of my freedom for granted. It may not always be this way, guys. Let's not take it for granted. I ask you to join with me in that, in seeking the praise of God over the praise of man. And one final point as we close, and you're probably thinking he's got like seven verses to cover and like negative 15 minutes to cover them. I understand uh, this will be very quick, I promise. Uh, one last point. The hour has come for the final appeal of the Savior. John says in verse 44 that Jesus cried out. So he, he apparently comes out of, of being hidden from them and for one last brief statement as the chapter finishes. And, and it's a final appeal to Israel. And some think this might just be a summary of, of Jesus' teachings in general. And maybe he didn't actually quote this at this time. But, but nonetheless, uh, these are the things that Jesus continually taught to implore his people to believe. You'll see nothing new in verses 44 through, through 50. We, we've covered all of this thoroughly in, in the book of John. But as we read this, um, yeah, it all sounds familiar. And three quick points to summarize what Jesus stresses here. First, the unity of the Father and the Son. As throughout His ministry, Jesus again explains that to see Him is to see the Father. He is, as, as Colossians put it, He is the exact image of the invisible God. This was important for these Jews to hear because they claimed to follow God the Father. They claimed to go follow God the Father. And Jesus says that God the Father and, and, and He the Son were in perfect harmony. Perfect unity. And you can't, you can't hear from Him unless you're hearing from Jesus. They're perfectly unified. Secondly, Jesus stresses the ultimate purpose of the Savior. He came to be light in the darkness and to provide salvation for the world. He says here that whoever believes in Him should not abide in darkness. Boy, our world is dark. And it's getting darker by the hour. And guess what? The world has no answers for your darkness. 
and for your emptiness. Some of you know by experience because, boy, you've chased it. And you found that the world has come up short every time. Every single time they've come up short. They have no answers. Come to the one, the only one who can save. The only one who has the answers. The only one who has the fulfillment you're looking for. You've got to come to him through repentance of your sin and surrender of your life. And then lastly, Jesus talks about the undeniable judgment that awaits. Jesus said that He did not come to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. However, in rejecting Him, we reject that salvation. We're all on a path to hell. And if we reject the only thing that can save us, then we continue on that path. And Jesus says that the very words that he speaks will judge that person on the last day. We see a picture of this in Revelation 19. We see Christ coming back at his second coming and he will come back. And in that chapter, he's riding a white horse and it says that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations out of this sword that comes out of his mouth. But we read in Hebrews 4 that that the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a picture in Revelation 19 of Christ judging the world through what? Through His Word. He's judging the the world through His Word. His Word offers life and peace and joy to you this morning and rest and fulfillment. His word says, come unto me, just as you are, just as we sang. Just as you are, come. Repent, all who are weary and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. His word invites you to come and receive forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice on the cross. So come. Because one day His Word will be the very Word that judges you. His Word that offered salvation will be the same Word that judges you to hell. His Word, if rejected, will be your doom. To be neutral towards Jesus is to reject Him altogether, by the way. There's either surrender to Christ or there's rejection of Christ. That is it. There is no middle ground this morning. Have you surrendered all to Jesus this morning or have you not? Just a little bit won't help. He's either Savior and He's Lord or He's insane. And you have to decide which is it. Many of you I know have decided and have put your faith in Christ, but still there may be one who hasn't. And you need to come today while He calls. Today may be your last opportunity. I don't know. 
I'm going to ask the, the girls to come on up and we're going to close in a song. But as we, as we close this morning, and as we consider the words of the song coming up, um, I want you to bow your heads and, and close your eyes. And I want to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus through repentance and faith. Now that's what it is, by the way. It's repenting of sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It's saying, Lord, I'm sorry, and actually meaning that. And being prepared to turn away from that life of chasing your own desires, to crucify yourself right at the cross, and to surrender to Him and His ways and His Word. Will you do that this morning? He's inviting you to come. And for those of you who, who are already believers, now I think there's so many home points for us this morning as well. Are, are, are you hardening your heart this morning to any part of God's Word? Are you hardening your heart, hardening your heart to any part of the Word of God? Are we seeking God for who He is? To know more of Him? Are we seeking His kingdom first, really? Rather than just the answers to our problems. Rather than just selfish things. Are we seeking Jesus this morning for Jesus? And finally, do you find yourself this morning often prepared Preferring the praise of men over the praise of God in your day-to-day -day life? Or are you truly embracing God's call to be a practical missionary right where you are? At your workplace, at the school, at wherever, wherever you are, on your street. Are you embracing God's call to proclaim His salvation boldly to the world? No matter who, who says anything about it. I want you to consider those things as we close this morning. Um, then the ladies are going to lead us in one final song and close us in prayer. But if you need someone to pray with, I'll be in the back. Feel free to grab me. If you, if you need to come to Christ and you, you need me to help you in those words, I'll be glad to do that. Come and grab me. And if you want to just tell me, hey, I, I just gave my life to Christ then come and tell me and let the church celebrate with you this morning. Don't be ashamed. It's the greatest decision you will ever make. So come this morning. Uh, I will be in the back if you need me. Um, ladies, there's plenty of ladies. I'm sure Paul would be glad to pray with you this morning. If you would feel more comfortable with that, come and grab her or one of the other ladies. But, but as we close, let's just consider these things. You do what you need to do with Jesus this morning.
Please pray with me. Jesus, just thank you for today and uh, how truly sweet it is just to trust in you. Lord, for without you, we are truly nothing. Lord, just help us to go into this week and just live out your word daily. Help us to make disciples for you and just to give you all the glory. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, 